condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the Zot Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome. (laughs) This is Behind the Headlines. It is July 16th, the 72nd anniversary of the first atomic weapons blast in White Sands, New Mexico, I believe. And I'm your host, one of your hosts today, Harrison Cayley. Joining me is Alain Martin. Hello, everyone. And Neil Bradley. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Harrison, you're full of interesting facts. (laughs) Yes, today, that's just today the, my is, one interesting fact. And uh, here's another one. Go ahead. Here's another one. On July 16th, 1994, the universe responded with a cosmic display of its own, right? Comet Shoemaker-Levy did the impossible and slammed into Jupiter. Wow. Uh, that is an interesting coincidence. I hadn't made that connection before. Mm-hmm. The universe's answer to man-made uh, destruction, destructive weaponry. Yeah, and that came only that came what forty-nine years later. Forty-nine, yes. Delayed response, but better uh... <laughs> late than never. Yep. So this week we are. Oh God, we're talking about Trump again. Oh, but just wait. We're not talking about Trump. We're talking about a different Trump this week. Trump Jr. Trump Jr. <laughs> Same name, similar face, different guy though. Variation. It's not our. It's not our fault, people. Listen, if the U.S. media sets the agenda and all it wants to talk about is Donald Trump and who he did not did or did not have meetings with, and the fate of the entire world in their mind depends on it, well, they give us no choice but to pick apart their nonsense and ridicule them. So we're at it again. Yeah, we're basically just uh, we're just doing what the mainstream media does in a slightly different way because um, there was a... Well, we're going to play some clips today of Tucker Carlson and some other people, but uh, there was a, a good clip on Tucker Carlson. He had this guy on... Um, I think it was, it was some media kind of bigwig. Oh, no, no, no. This was... This was actually on, I think, CNN. It was um, Anderson Cooper talking to uh, uh, some Republican, I think someone on the Trump team, and they were basically talking about about the media. And the guy was like, "Well, you know, why are why are you guys are the ones focusing on this? Why are you fo- why are you talking about Trump's tweets so much?" And then the it was probably Anderson Cooper, and I think it was pretty much the same thing on on MSNBC and some female anchor. And they're basically basically saying, well, if Trump tweets something, that means we have to cover it because uh, because those are official statements. So as if Trump, as long as Trump keeps tweeting, we've got to keep talking about it. And this was their justification right. for focusing so much, like you know, ninety percent of their coverage on the Trump tweet. And this was in response to the CNN bashing uh, meme that Trump posted. So I mean, the the mainstream media focuses on these totally non like non stories that really aren't newsworthy at all but they focus on them so much and devote so much attention to them that they then become you know big news stories 
which then, you know, focus, that, um, kind of forces people like us to have to respond to them and point out why they're not big news stories and try to get to the bottom of what the actual stories are. So, I mean, it's kind of annoying. It's kind of entertaining at the same time and uh, hopefully not a waste of time. <laughs> Last week, Trump and Putin met for the first time. And we said that was big. And we said what will happen next is immediately they will start to ramp things up, um, de- develop new ways of attacking Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, here's the answer. That's what we're going to look at in detail today. Maybe just before we do that, I'd like to underscore how significant that meeting was last week. What about if we play that little clip from Stephen Cohen? All right. So this is a clip. Stephen Cohen was on uh, Dr. Carlson's show uh, last week, just a few days ago. So we'll play a clip from that. Well, just so you all know, Stephen Cohen is a Russia expert. Uh, I believe he's a academic who's been working out of NYU or or a pretty prestigious um, academic institution. Uh, he's one of the few people um, in academia, I think, in the U.S. who's been kind of outspoken enough and and informed enough to speak with any kind of uh, objective perspective on what we're seeing in the U.S. So, uh, yeah. And he's been writing books and, uh, you know, academic books and even like um, more popular books for like 30 years on Russia and, and uh, you know, Russian relations with the U.S. So let's hear what he has to say. One other tiny piece of trivia. His wife is an editor at Newsweek. And, I mean, he's uh-huh. a lefty academic. So they're both lefties. So there's no kind of slant here. Anyway, let's just play what Cohen has to say. Professor, the first thing you notice is just how much the press is rooting for this meeting between our president and the Russian president to fail. Why? Why would they want it to fail? Well, it's a kind of pornography. <clears throat> Just as there's no uh, love in pornography, there's no American national interest in this bashing of Trump and Putin. As a historian, uh, let me tell you the headline I would write instead, what we witnessed today in Hamburg. Uh, potentially historic new detente anti-Cold War partnership begun by Trump and Putin, but meanwhile attempts to sabotage it escalate. Now, you said I was an expert. I actually do have one expertise. I've seen a lot of summits, as we call meetings between American and Russian presidents. Was uh, was present at some. Even participated uh, in the first George Bush's summit uh, preparation when he met with Gorbachev in Malta. He invited me to Camp David to debate before his Team. In that context, I think what we saw today uh, was potentially the most fateful meeting between an American and Russian president since the wartime. The reason is, is that the relationship with Russia is so dangerous, and yet we have a president who might have been crippled or cowed by these Russiagate attacks on him, and yet he was not. He was, I think, politically courageous. It went well. They did important things. And this will be astonishing to be said, I know, but I think maybe today we witnessed President Trump emerging as an American statesman. I think it was a very good day for everybody. Yeah. Very good day for everybody. This was what they absolutely didn't want to happen, Trump and Putin meeting. 
or at least they tried to delay it, they tried to control, they tried to curtail how long they would speak, yada, yada. Anyway, it was just two hours, but it's already having some impact. And one of the main things we said would happen as a result of it was this pushback. And there we are. It's another week and another scandal in quotes, another great big nothing burger. But we're going to go into it anyway because, heck, everyone else is talking about it. So where do we start with this? I mean, what 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 do we sketch the claims first? The, maybe the main claim is that mm. Trump Jr. had a meeting with someone who is connected to the Kremlin. Yes. So if I can remember, like how the story first developed, it came out in the New York Times, and it was kind of like uh, over the past week, the first story came out. I believe it was last Sunday when we when we did the last show, and then each day after that, more was kind of added to the story. So it started out that. Trump Jr. had a, a meeting with um, with a Russian lawyer um, in June, uh, June 9th, I believe, 9th or 6th of last year, so just over a year ago. And then the story kind of expanded from there. It was then that uh, this was a, um, a a Russian lawyer who had promised um, to to give um, damaging information on Hillary Clinton. And that was kind of the extent of the second big, you know, breaking story. And then the third one was that this was part of a Kremlin-backed operation to, um, um, you know, sully the reputation of Hillary Clinton and support Donald Trump. And then right after this, uh, that this is when we started getting uh, responses from people like Donald Trump Jr. himself and others involved in the story, because the story was that a lot at this meeting uh, was also Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law. And uh, Paul Manafort, who was, I believe, at that time, um, Trump's campaign director. And yeah, so then, yeah, so then in the day or two after that, uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, released a statement on Twitter along with the email exchange, because uh, in this New York Times expose, they had said that they have, you know, that they have knowledge that, the e- that this started with an email sent by a British publicist and that had all the information in it. So Donald Trump Jr. then released the entire email chain on Twitter um, so you could read the entire exchange, which gave kind of all the, the background information and kind of a, a running play-by-play on the lead-up to this meeting. And so since then, there have been more stories. Um, people, have, of course, people have been in news organizations and newspapers have been interviewing the Russian lawyer involved and the other people that were at this meeting. So the basic story, in addition to what we just said, so there's this um, this British publicist uh, named Rob Goldstone, and he is kind of uh, an acquaintance of Trump Jr. and uh, I guess the Trump family. Back in uh, what what year was it? Maybe around ten years ago. I think it was two thousand eight. I can't remember for sure. Um, there was this Miss Universe pageant in Russia, and um, Goldstone had had worked with Trump to to organize it, and um, this w- brought in the involvement of these two Russian businessmen. I believe they're originally Azeri, so from Azerbaijan. Um, the Agam. Uh, Agalamovs, I think the, their name is, um, Emin and Eras. Mm-hmm. And so Emin was, is the young, is the, the son. He's a singer and Goldstone is his publicist. And so they basically worked together on this Miss Universe pageant and kind of, you know, it was a basically a little business cooperation, you know, ag- agreement with, uh, with Trump and these, uh, Russian businessmen. And so that's the connection between the, 
these kind of main players. So now Goldstone on June 6th or something like that sends an email to Donald Trump Jr. saying that he heard from Amin, so this, the, the son, uh, the, this singer, um, who Goldstone works as a publicist for, heard from him that, that he and his father had heard from the Russian crown prosecutor that, uh, that the Russian government wants to send, wants to, to share some official Russian documents with the Trump team because of their support for Trump and that this is kind of explosive stuff and it deals with, um, basically Hillary Clinton and some, some, um, some funding issues, I guess, that might look, make Hillary Clinton look bad. So this is the email that, that, uh, that Goldstone sends and he, and he says that I can set up a meeting with, like, like with Amin or something and there's also this, this Russian government prosecutor involved and, you know, maybe you can meet with her. So the emails go back and forth and, and it turns out that, you know, Amin maybe might not be able to make the meeting and so Trump Jr. just basically says, okay, yeah, sounds good. You know, let's just set something up. Maybe I can talk with Amin over the phone, blah, blah, blah. And they eventually end up setting up a meeting with this quote, Russian government prosecutor, and that meeting takes place. So this takes place several days later. And uh, so what we know about this is that um, th- this meeting had Trump Jr., Kushner, and Manafort, and then this lawyer. Um, Where did this meeting take place? In Trump Tower in New York. Right, because all week long, I mean, I was reading, you know, dipping in and out of the story, but I was led to believe it was pretty clear impression they were sending out that this took place in Moscow, that Trump Jr. and Kushner flew over there no, to yeah. meet with this person. It was, it took place in Trump Tower. Anyway, yeah. okay. If you so, imagine last June, like it's hectic. It's a campaign, you know, you're meeting people all the time. Okay, so the meeting takes place. So the meeting takes place. We've got the three guys from the Trump team and then this vo- this lawyer, uh, Veselnitskaya, I believe, mm-hmm. believe her name is. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Along on, with another, another question. Sorry. Yeah. You've been calling her a, a state prosecutor to now, okay. and now she's a Russian lawyer. So what is it? Okay. No. So there were two two mentions in the email. There was uh, apparently these Russian businessmen heard from the Russian crown prosecutor. Now, just as a, a side note, there is no crown prosecutor in Russia. That's a term used in the UK because I mean, there's no royalty there's no monarchy in russia right. the, the term it's kind of like um the equivalent term in the states would be the attorney general and in russia it's the prosecutor general so um the implication is that it was referring to the the prosecutor general who i believe his name is like chaika or something like that and then she, he also refers to that russian go- government lawyer or or attorney that i told you about or that i know and so this is a different Veselnitskaya. person yeah this is Veselnitskaya. And, um, and so she, so this is a woman that came to the meeting. Now, again, as another side note, she is not a Russian government attorney. She's just like any other attorney like you'd have in the States or, uh, you know, in any other country. She's not government connected. She's not a government attorney. She's just a, basically a defense lawyer. Um, and does she no fly, does she, does she fly over from Moscow for this? Now, this is uncertain because right. we don't know how she got to the States because this, this is another story that came out just in the last few days. So it, as people started looking into her background, so, well, we'll get into her background a, a bit. I just want to round out who was at the meeting. So apparently, okay. apparently Goldstone actually was, was also at the meeting and that wasn't clear at first. And also, um, uh, another, uh, well, a Russian, well, an American lobbyist. This is an ex-Russian who's now an American citizen. Um, and his, uh, his name is Akmetchin. 
And so there were the, at least these three on the on the so-called Russian side and then the three on the Trump side. Now let's get into a, a bit about who these three Russians were. Well, two Russians or no, one Russian, one Brit and one American ex-Russian. So um, Vezelnitskaya first, she is uh, a lawyer. As we said, she she has done defense work, including defending um, um, Russian companies in the United States for, you know, any losses that might come up. She's also kind of uh, a lobbyist of sorts. So she came into the States, uh, I believe it was either end of 2015 or beginning of 2016 mm-hmm. to 2015. 2015 to work on one of these cases. Mm-hmm. And cause she was, uh, you know, uh, defending a, a client in the States. And, uh, the, the strange story about that is that she, she applied for a visa and I believe the visa was denied at first for some reason. Um, but then, uh, because it was an emergency, she said she was let in basically under, uh, extraordinary circumstances and this w- would have been or was, uh, I don't, can't remember if this was confirmed or not, um, it would have been um, allowed by Loretta Lynch, who was, what, attorney general at the time? Mm-hmm. And so she's led into the country to work on this case. And then that's the kind of the, that's the last thing we kind of hear about it. She was only supposed to be in the States for, you know, however long it would have taken her to, to work on this trial. I think it would have been like a couple of weeks or a couple of months or something. So we're not years. This was years ago. Well, this is this is um, this was end of 2015, beginning of 2016. So this is just about six months okay. before the meeting. So presumably, um, like we don't we don't know if she left the country and came back at that time, or if she stayed this entire time. And if so, we don't know how she managed to stay that entire time um, and to engage in lobbying work without you know registering as a foreign agent and um, basically getting renewing her visa or whatever. So we don't know how she was in the country at this time to do this. But anyways, so however she got here, if she stayed the whole time, you know, overstayed her visa or whatever, we don't really know how she was there for this meeting. And uh, she was also um, lobbying at, in June for, um, well, uh, she had been a, lo- a lobbyist in relation to this thing called the Magnitsky Act. So this came about from um, uh, a case that happened several years ago uh, involving this guy, this like kind of businessman accountant bill browder i think he was he was this british guy right uh he he was um an accountant who worked for bill browder yeah magnitsky was magnitsky was and that's a whole separate story in and of itself yeah um but we'll, we'll probably get into that um yeah maybe we'll, we'll leave that aside for a moment just just to to leave it that this guy was apparently arrested and then he died in prison in in Russia, mm-hmm. and it caused this Magnitsky. big scandal. Magnitsky caused this yeah. big scandal because, um, you know, Browder said that he'd uncovered some shady dealings, and Magnitsky was a whistleblower, and he was basically killed in prison, assassinated. That was his contention. And so the the U.S. passed this law, the Magnitsky Act. What what were the actual details of it? Basically, the Magnitsky Act was the first. Oh, it's salvo. Rights, right? Yeah. Yes, but it was. What it effectively passed were the first salvo of sanctions mm-hmm. against Russia, against specific personnel close to Putin. And that happened in 2012. Late, right. late 2012. This is pre-Kiev. This mm-hmm. is pre-Kamaria. This was the first round of sanctions against Russia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, maybe we'll return to that later as yeah. a kind of interesting backdrop. But, okay, back to this meeting. Where are we at now? So... So Veselnitskaya was a lobbyist 
basically trying to fix this Magnitsky Act thing. And because the Russian response to this was to halt any um, um, American adoption of Russian children. So the Russians basically said, we won't send you any, um, you know, Russian orphans or anything to be adopted by American parents. So, yeah. um, so Veselnitskaya was lobbying, she says, in order to, uh, she, like her cause was basically to, to mend the, uh, mend relations in this small area to possibly, um, you know, relieve sh- sanctions in this area or to get the, Ru- to get the Russians to, to, um, allow American adoption of Russian children. So after this kind of blew up in the media, both Trump Jr. and then this Russian lawyer, they both said, uh, both gave a very similar account of the actual meeting. So what they said is that, well, I'll, I'll give uh, Trump Jr.'s account first. He basically says that he said, okay, yeah, let's do the meeting. Let's see what these people have. He thought, he essentially thought it was as Goldstone presented it, that this would be kind of opposition, opposition research. So, which is basically just digging up dirt on your opponent. You know, every politician does it in a campaign, in an election campaign. I mean, you may not like it, but that's just the way it is. So he agrees to do this meeting, and then he says she comes in, and she, she basically doesn't have anything. She doesn't know what he's talking about. She doesn't even speak English. She has to have a translator, and and she launches into this thing about Russian adoption or American adoption of Russians. And, and he, like, right away, Trump Jr. says he's just like, okay, this was a waste of time. She doesn't have anything. I don't, you know, I don't care about this issue. It has nothing to do with me. So the meeting lasted for about 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, by this time, Kushner and, and Manafort had already left the room because they were bored. And nothing came out of it. And she says the same thing. She says that she came to the meeting and that was why she was there. This is what she wanted to discuss. And she did have, she says she left a two-page document. And on this part of this two-page document, so you're guessing maybe like a half a page, had to do with, it had some statements about Russian uh, funding for the DNC. Now, she says that that Trump Jr. asked her, well, do you have any documents to like back anything of back any of this up because i mean that's what he was expecting the the email had explicitly stated these were official russian documents now just as another side note it, that has a uh, a big implication if it's official russian documents then that means it's official that means if the, they were made public in any way it would be obviously from the russian government so there was there was no even hint of this being any kind of like shady um, espionage type thing going on this would have been someone providing official documents you know, in an official kind of chain of custody way to the Trump campaign, they could say, look, we have these official Russian documents, you know, provided by the Russian government showing these kinds of payments. There would have been nothing like super scandalous about that. So Donald Trump Jr. took the bait of getting into a meeting in which he was possibly going to get dirt on Hillary and specifically that that dirt was going to show that the Russians in some official way were actually meddling in the U.S. In elections on behalf of Hillary. Right. And, like, maybe not that specific, but maybe Russians were. So these could have been Russian businessmen. Who knows who, who you know, who was involved in, in giving money to the DNC. Could have okay. been could have been people in the Russian government, could have not been. We don't know. But, yeah, this would have been Russian American collusion of some sort. Now, just to, to, to put this in perspective, like what you're doing, if this was, if the tables were turned, then, you know, of course the Democrats would, would be calling this, you know, if the same thing had happened between the Trump campaign and Russians, so if, if, if the Trump campaign were, were getting payments from, um, from any Russians, we'd see exactly what we're seeing today. Oh my God, 
Russian Trump collusion. This is subverting American democracy. This is horrible, blah, blah, blah. Um, which is just bogus anyways. But anyways, the, the, the long and short of it is that the, the Russians were basically saying that that's what ha- was happening with Clinton. So Clinton was getting Russian money to some degree, to some extent. And that was pretty much the extent of it. And when Trump asked her for it, she says, Oh, I don't have these documents and I don't think I can get them. Like, so the, the implication of all this, like what it looks like is that Goldstone being a British publicist and, you know, I don't know any British publicists, but, um, you know, I saw an interview with uh, Scott Adams where he was saying, okay, for those of you who aren't in the business, who don't know it, like British publicists, yeah, you have to know something about them. They're not known for their truth telling, you know, they're, I mean, think about it. This guy's a music publicist, a musician's publicist. That's his main job. His job is to hype things, right? To get publicity. So what it looks like what happened is that Goldstone basically tried his best to hype this meetings just to get the meeting, you know, to, to be able to get this meeting for, um, he says, you know, for these Russian businessmen, it was their idea. He says he wanted to get this meeting. And so he hyped it up. He said, Oh, the Russian government, you know, wants to support Trump and we've got these documents that they want to share. And so, yeah, it was basically bait. Um, but as far as we know, it was just bait, um, you know, from some shady, um, British publicist who just wanted to get a meeting for his friends with this Russian. As far as we know, that's the extent of it. Maybe more, but that's the kind of the initial, um, you know, implication that I see from this. So Goldstone basically hypes this up and gets the meeting. And then when it turns out that, that she basically doesn't have any documents, she doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, Trump Jr. basically shows her the door and that's the extent of it. And like Trump Jr. says, you know, you have meetings like this all the time. Um, and it's like he barely even remembered it. And, um, you know, a lot of the people involved say, you know, it was just it wasn't even a blip on their radar. They'd forgotten about it. It was a total non-event. Um, but of until, course, it, until <laughs> until the Washington Post brought it up. Yeah. New York last Times. Sunday, New York Times. And they brought it up with the bombshell implication that Trump Jr. was colluding with the Russians, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they haven't used it before now. Somebody somewhere was sitting on it, obviously. And now they're bringing it up. Trump Jr. responds by he, – he responds with one answer, and then apparently he's been raked over the coals now for not telling the whole truth. And then in response – he publishes the emails he said that are total correspondence with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading that a claim that uh, <clears throat> this is a quote from the email by Goldstone setting the meeting up. Apparently, I don't, this this sounds too good to be true, and and who can't see through this? Here it goes. This is obviously very high level. This being the dirt I'm about to give you and sensitive information, says Goldstone, but is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. So Goldstone is claiming in his email to Donald Trump Jr. last June that he's got information and it's coming from Russia and it's because they support you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. If, have you heard this? Has anyone contested that? I mean, what's assumed in the email is that Donald Trump Jr. goes, oh, sure. OK, great. We'll set the meeting up. But he's aware that the Russians are supporting his father's campaign. Well, yeah, it, it, we that sounds to me like that was written in after the fact that that never happened. Unless 
I'm wrong. Does it say that in the email exchange? No, it, it does say that in the email exchange. Now, I'd just say, so this is why I think that Goldstone was basically just trying to hype it up as much as possible, and he was just kind of blowing hot air. Um, but the So Donald Trump Jr. responds to that saying, oh, yeah, if it's true, uh, I'd love it. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, that Trump Jr. kind of, um, it just kind of like rolled off his back, like he just accepted that the Russian government was giving his support. You know, I, I, we can't say, you know, he hasn't said one way or the other if he believed everything in this original email or not. I mean, we could just as easily say that he, that he thought it might be a possibility and that, and that he just wanted to see, you know, what this woman had to say and if she, if she was legit, because in his response, you know, Trump Jr. does say, if this is legit or something, words to that effect, then, then I'd love it. He doesn't say, oh yeah, that's great. We, you know, he doesn't in any way, in his emails confirm that he knows that the Russian government is supporting, you know, the Trump campaign or anything. He, it's, it's basically a one-liner. All of Trump Jr.'s responses are pretty much one-liners like, okay, yeah, let's set it up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me talk to him. Blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, there, there's yeah. not a lot of content. I think you're right. I think that just w- went completely over the head of Trump Jr. because mm-hmm. last June, this wasn't an issue yet. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what was about to happen. That, the Democrats and probably the deep state behind it were planning to go this tack, go this route mm-hmm. of crying Russian collusion. Right. And yes. so Trump, Trump Jr. is like, oh, great. We probably did, just, you know, glazed over that. Russian government support. What? Oh, cool. Whatever. We'll take any support we can. I mean, yeah, every... Every Saudi royal out there, you know, supports Hillary's campaign. So, yeah, sure. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. What have you got? Um, furthermore, it's, it's indicative, assuming that's actual content from an email back then. This Goldstone, for him to say that, I mean, <laughs> maybe maybe it's just simple on his part, too. He's a publicist. He's hyping. But he doesn't know what kind of a, a minefield, uh, a mine he's setting for later. Or he knows something. Yeah. Or he knew that this was going to be um, something that would cause a lot of problems for them later. Yeah. Of course, no, no one knew back then that Trump would get elected, but we do know for sure that last summer, right when Trump won the Republican nomination, that they started down this route of screaming Russian collusion. Yeah. Ties with Russia. Yeah. And isn't, I mean, someone mentioned that on the, in the chat room, uh, a comment from Seeker. Meeting setup has all the hallmarks of a sting by British sources slash intel and interested parties in the US. Mm-hmm. I've got to admit, I had that thought too. I mean, Goldstone, Golden Showergate. Mm-hmm. Does anyone remember Golden Showergate in January? Mm-hmm. That was a British spy, a British spy going to Russia to get dirt on Trump on behalf of the Democrats and the deep state. Mm-hmm. And there's even Which a connection. Is precisely what, yeah. There's a connection to that too. So I'll, maybe I'll get into that right now. Or did you have a thought you wanted to finish? No, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So one of the other guys at this meeting was this uh, American lobbyist. This is the the guy that got American citizen citizenship. He used to be Russian. Um, Akhmetshin. Um, so now because he admitted to being in the meeting. There's all kinds of news stories about him. So a bit about his background. Well, first of all, in the in the Western media, he's being called a suspected Russian intelligence asset. And I've I've heard former Soviet counterintelligence yeah, he, officer. Yes, 
So, but former Soviet being the trigger word. Are you triggered? <laughs> so, yeah. So, so former Soviet counterintelligence and, but, but added on top of that, suspected of continued, you know, intelligence work for the Russians. So they're basically implying that this guy is still working for Russian intelligence. Now, what we know about this guy, um, he was, well, he admits himself to being in the Russian military, um, in 1986 to 1988, and he was stationed in the Balkans. Now, he denies being uh, a Russian counterintelligence officer. He says that while he was in the military, he did do counterintelligence work while in the, in the Balkans, but only as a, a regular, you know, member of the, the Russian uh, army at that time or whatever, you know, uh, division of the Russian army he was in. Um, it was just kind of normal work that, that Russian military men did while they were stationed in the Balkans. He said he was never trained as a counterintelligence officer and any suggestion that, that he's engaged in Russian intelligence work is slander. Uh, he says it's totally not true. In fact, he's an American citizen and he's been work, he's uh, been working as a lobbyist. Um, again, like Veselnitskaya, as part, uh, one of his lobbying efforts has been uh, about the Magnitsky Act. So he was at this meeting and he says, uh, he gives this, the same account of the meeting as Donald Trump Jr. and the Russian lawyer. Um, just all the, all the things that we said about what they said happened, he says happened. And, um, he denies any connection to the Russian government. The Russian lawyer denies any con- connection to the Russian, to the Russian government. And even the, um, I, I, oh, I forget their names. The Agalimov, I think is their name, these Russian businessmen. Um, they, they've come out too and responded to this and they say that Goldstone's email, they said 90% of it is totally wrong. They say it was total lies. They said the only bit of truth in that was that they wanted, that they, that they did want to set up this meeting. But according to them, um, their story is the same as the, as Trump and all these other people. Their, the purpose for why they wanted to set up this meeting was to talk about this Russian adoption and Magnitsky Act information. Okay. So that really speaks to the fact you know, what you were saying before, that Goldstone really just was a publicist, was really conflating some information to get Donald Trump Jr. in the room yeah. with this uh, with this lobbyist lawyer lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but there's one interesting thing here, and this is kind of the big question mark over this over all this, is that this Ru- this American Russian lobbyist, Akmetchin, he has done work for this group, um, Fusion GPS. Fusion GPS is the British group that was hired to get to, to come up with that fake Russian dossier on Donald Trump, the golden mm. showers thing. So fusion GPS is the, are, are the guys that basically commissioned this uh, intelligence report from that, from that ex British spook, Christopher Steele. And, um, and so he's somehow connected with that same group, which is a, which is a strange coincidence. And, mm-hmm. in, and in that dossier, the Agalimovs are mentioned um, just a brief mention, um, Eris, the father, um, in, in, a, in a short section, it's, it's like basically source B or something like that says that, um, that there's like bribe, bribery involved or blackmail or something between Trump and some Russians. And it involves like these sexual escapades. And this source is sure that Eris, uh, uh, Abalamov knows all about it. So we just have to ask him and he's got all the details. That's the one mention to this guy in this Russian dossier. So, so there's this, this strange kind of circle of, of these people all involved in the same kind of thing. Like there's just strange connections. They may, you know, maybe they're just coincidence. Maybe there's something more to them. It's just strange that this, so there's a guy at the meeting who's connected to the, to the, the company that basically is responsible for the Russian dossier. And then the Russian dossier, uh, mentions, um, 
this businessman, who's the guy that set up the meeting, that involved this uh, this Russian American lobbyist. And the the lobbyist guy says that he didn't even know about the meeting until that morning. He says he basically showed up in jeans and a T-shirt because he was just told about it that morning, and then he showed up. So all around, it's just it is a a, a strange story. Um, you got something to say about that, Neil? It's entrapment. There's, yeah. I'm almost certain now. This is entrapment. The only thing I would put a question mark over is whether or not it was intended for this. I don't think so. I wonder if the purpose of it last June was to get Paul Manafort in that meeting. Because mm-hmm. yeah, he was, he yeah. was the chairman. He was, he was in charge of Trump's campaign. Now he eventually quit in August. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Under the cloud of Russian collusion. Mm-hmm. Which only began in June around the time of this meeting. I'm not sure when exactly that kicked off, but I wonder if uh, the entrapment, assuming that this, this is that this is what it is, had Paul Manafort in his sights. Mm-hmm. And yeah. well, there were two others present who are now relatively key players in the Trump administration. Certainly, um, Jared Kushner is. He's in the White House, mm-hmm. in the cabinet. So. They're, pro- they're probably they, they they go for one of the other two who are still standing from that meeting, you, and they dredge up. They just they fit they fit other f- facts around what they do have that this meeting took place, and voila, you 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 reinvigorate or you spin it around again the same Russian collusion, and it gets and and, and it gets another pass. Mm-hmm. Nothing burger. As Van Jones aptly called it not two weeks ago. Uh, well, you know, it, it also might have been um, set up in order to um, give some credence or credence of some sort to this dossier, because one of the statements in the dossier was that the Trump team was receiving um, like information or documents or something like from the Russians. It was kind of a vague statement, but it if. If documents were passed at this meeting, that would then corroborate the information in this dossier. Um, but no documents were passed, and it turned out to be like a, a you know a minor blip on anyone's radar. The, there nothing came out of the meeting, and so, so even if it but even if it was a setup, it was like a really sloppy one because well maybe they were just seeing if Trump Jr. would take the bait because. When he was there, he asked the questions. He's like, where, where are these documents? And when, when she didn't have them and said she couldn't get them, he just kind of left it at that. I don't know if, you know, maybe they were hoping that he'd, um, you know, be more interested or try to, well, I don't know. But um, just a couple more details, maybe go off in a slightly different direction. Um, two tweets that I think are relevant that came out one from the New York times journalist that had was originally breaking this story after Trump jr. Released the emails. This guy releases, <laughs> puts out this tweet where he says, I'm just paraphrasing, but there's lots of ellipses in, in the response. He's like, Oh, Oh my God, I was working on this story for one year. And then Donald Trump just tweets it out. So this Russian or this New York times journalist says he's been working on this story for a year implying, you know, that would say suggest that he's been working on this story since about July of last year, like a month after the events, and that he had these emails 
and that he was well. The, the the rumor kind of going around is that the New York Times was basically threatening to release the emails, and that's why Trump Jr. released them first to kind of scoop them on it. But so the, so this journalist himself says he he was working on the story for a full year, and he was kind of butthurt that uh, that Donald Trump scooped him on it. So that's interesting. First of all, like how did he get these emails? Um, because as far as I remember, looking reading them, the only like the only recipients involved, the only people in the correspondence were Trump Jr. and and Goldstone. Mm-hmm. So who had access to these emails? How did the New York Times mm-hmm. get them? And then a second tweet. This gets back to what you were saying about Manafort, Neil, is that um, um, some guy uh, that worked on the Trump campaign, I don't know who he is, what his connection with it was, he said he had the breaking news a couple of days ago. He says that um, – Several sources confirmed for him, and he re- he revealed in a later tweet that there were sources in the White House and um, um, one other organization, I can't remember if it was like um, State Department or something, um, had confirmed to him that the purpose of this whole thing was to get a wiretap on Manafort, that they said that, the, that Manafort's phone was tapped, there was a FISA warrant for his phone, and that this was for the purpose of getting him in the room with Russians so that he could they could basically um, listen in on Manafort's calls um, with the, with the excuse being that there were these um, Russians in the meeting. And that's basically, you know, the reason they give for listening in. This was the same thing that happened with, um, you know, that came out around the, the time of the Flynn, uh, the Flynn fiasco was that the that there were certain people in Trump's team being um, basically spied on. But the, but the, incidentally, they were actually spying on the Russians, and it was just uh, it was just the presence of any American individuals that happened to get caught up in the surveillance, and then their names were unmasked. Um, but so the, these got this guy is saying he has sources saying that Manafort wa- was being wiretapped, and again, this was Laura Loretta Lynch that was doing this, also pointing out that this would have been illegal because you know the the FISA warrant was rejected for some reason, you know, in June or something like that. But that just, you know, another interesting little, you know, dot to, that possibly connects to all this, that, that there was um, some bigger kind of operation going on. And the Laura, the, the Laura Lynch connection and the fact that she had let um, Veselnitskaya into the country, essentially, you know, six months earlier, seven months earlier in order to, to work on this case. It's just, uh, you know. A lot of connections in this thing that that you wouldn't expect if this were just, um, you know, a humdrum, you know, regular meeting. It seems like there's something something extra involved in this whole story. Well, mm-hmm. I, I just want to take a step back for a minute because, like you said a couple of moments ago, Harrison, you know, the the, the uh, New York Times reporter who said I'd been scooped and I'd been working on this uh, this story for about a year, and you asked a, a poignant question, which is. Or an important question, which is, how did you know about it? How did, how was he even provided with the the emails or the information about the meeting, uh, unless he was being fed this information by people in intelligence agencies? So you you get the sense that that this that this uh, nothing burger uh, Trump Jr. meeting is just another one of a large pile. Of of little kind of connections that uh, that the intelligence agencies in uh, in cahoots with uh, you know the Washington Post and New York Times and CNN are ready to dole out and introduce into the public sphere as needed. 
and and they they conflate the stories in, into uh, into this this big kind of uh, so-called evidence of Russian collusion, and uh, you know I'm sure there's a story somewhere of you know Melania Trump having bought a matryoshka doll in New York somewhere, and 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 how the matryoshka doll is uh, had had secret instructions from Putin to to, to Trump, uh, you know I jest of course, but. Uh, the sense is that, that they have a whole kind of uh, list of possible uh, um, non-events that they're that they're just waiting to dole out and drip out and and put out there so that this story never ends. Mm-hmm. Yep, they have many irons in the in the fire. Um, part of the specific accusations against Manafort were that he had these business connections. <laughs> Yeah, now the business connections were with Ukrainians. So they spun it last summer as, well, they're Ukrainian hyphen Russians. You see, they do business in both countries. So that's Russian collusion, you know. Mm-hmm. But in getting the dirt on Manafort, what did the DNC do? They sent someone to Kiev to talk to Poroshenko. Mm-hmm. Hello? <laughs> collusion? Let's assume this is true, that Trump Jr. met with this Kremlin-associated lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. To get the dirt. There was no dirt. But he intended to get the dirt. He's not hiding that. He's holding his hands up. I need dirt. The reason why he's holding his hands up and saying, yeah, I wanted the dirt, is because that's standard. It's what happens. Everyone does it. So, yeah. What's your point, exactly? Mm-hmm. What What is the point? In the end, in the end, it makes no freaking coherent sense unless people go from that and the, their mind just goes berserk because it's Russia. Mm-hmm. There's no no logical, reasonable consequence of this, other than okay, yeah, that's yeah. what they all do, unless it's proof that it's Russia. And if it's proof that it's Russia, it's proof that it's from the devil incarnate himself. Mm-hmm. Well, the the other point, Neil, is that so Paul Manafort um, was working with Viktor Yanukovych, right? He was the uh, president of the Ukraine before he got overthrown by the Poroshenko regime. Um, and his work for Yanukovych uh, is what drew the attention of a DNC operative named Alexandra Chalupa. Uh, who was working as a White House? That's what um, I was. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking about. Uh, she she was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars over a series of years to to kind of look at that situation, and then and then uh, make a kind of tie with um, the Ukrainian, uh, I think the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, and uh, and later just kind of dig up dirt uh, on. Trump uh, with Ukraine, with this new government, this new regime in Ukraine. Uh, so that's the story that that's being buried uh, in the news as as Donald Trump Jr. story is front and center. And, you know, like you're saying, you know, th- this is this is kind of almost standard operating procedure in, in, in political campaigning. And yet no one is in the major mainstream media new york times washington post cnn are are discussing this aspect of it so when when you when you take that whole part of it out of the equation all that remains is russian collusion and and the trump team 
So basically, we know for a fact, and the the American mainstream media has has admitted on numerous occasions um, over the past six seven months that Hillary Clinton and, and the Democratic Party paid um, Americans and Ukrainians for dirt on Trump. They colluded with Ukrainians in order to to get you know foreign sourced information that would damage Trump. Um, so doesn't that mean that Ukraine um, interfered with the holy and sacred democratic elections in the United States? Isn't that evidence of American-Ukrainian collusion to subvert American democracy? Um, well, yeah, but uh, it doesn't really matter, um, which which is the whole point that this this is – uh, it's, it's even less than like a non-story because like you said, Neil, a couple of times, like this is just the way things work. It happens all the time. And the funny thing about it is that in this case, it didn't happen with Russia and, and Trump. Like it, it just didn't happen. And what's interesting is that even all these mainstream, uh, sources, they won't uh, they've even kind of accepted the, the, the Trump's account of it that no documents were handed over. It's not like there's any New York Times journalist saying, "Oh, but we think that the the Russians really did hand over information about Clinton and the Russians." They can't even say that because the information itself is about presumably about Clinton collusion with Russians. So they can't they can't even talk about the the actual um, you know documents that were promised to be handed over and that maybe were handed over because if they were to do that, they would just be exposing Clinton Russian yeah. collusion. Yeah. So it's, it's like, what are they even thinking with this story? The only thing, well, they're not thinking the only, it's like they're, it's like they're rabid dogs just chasing after, you know, some random object because all they have, all they have are creative headlines, right. Kremlin associated lawyer, former Soviet counterintelligence officer, I mean, they probably that they're, they're relying on, on on the inertia of what they've managed to rely on mm-hmm. up until recent times, which is that people really only get the headline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it comes to actual investigations, they're terrified of them. They don't mind congressional hearings. We'll get more because they're ongoing at the moment. We can get to them in a minute. But when it comes to an actual case, they have them, mm-hmm. whether they know it or not. I don't know. They're so deluded. The, the, but the, the reason why this makes no sense on its own after we've just spent, what, 50 minutes analyzing, and it's, again, nothing burger. And if we can do it, you know, smarter people in Washington who are critical or skeptical or need to be convinced, certainly lawyers and judges, it'll take them five minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's a nothing burger. But what do they win out of it? Well, it's it's this plus other ways of lying in the end, they're also all lies, lying about how Russia is evil, that just creates this powerful, they believe, suggestion that Russia is evil and that if Trump associates with them in any way, then he's a traitor to his country. Mm-hmm. And it's they're, just, relying on, they're relying on suggestion, and mm-hmm. suggestion just ain't going to do it anymore. Hello, Trump got it. Donald Trump is president of the United States. Do you not understand what that means? It means people were prepared to vote for a celebrity TV guy <laughs> over your choices. That's how bad you are. That's how much they hate you. <laughs> uh, 
Um, where do they think they're going? It's a witch hunt. Donald Trump is right. Um, what will they do next? Target other family members? They probably will. They're probably going to get lower and dirtier and dirtier. Um, impeachment, the I word, it floated again this week. Mm-hmm. Um, we heard it from Al Green. Apparently he's Texas rep in May. He, he brought it up on the floor, but now they've actually got a resolution from Representative Brad Sherman, Democrat, California, has introduced a resolution to impeach Donald Trump for high crimes, high crimes, high crimes, high, high memes, too many memes and misdemeanors. Um, <clears throat> now, I, at the same time, the senior DNC people are dissing themselves from it, um, at least publicly. Um uh, maybe they don't think the time is right. It'll be hilarious whenever they do think the time is right and they go for it. <laughs> because I'm looking forward to seeing it fall flat in his face. Um, so, do we have anything else on that? Nothing, nothing burger. Um, well, I, I wonder if we want to uh, play one of the sound bites of, because um, like you were saying, Neil, you know, that all of this is such a nothing and when you look past the the headlines, uh, when you actually begin to ask rigorous questions, uh, as Tucker Carlson tries to do on his uh, Fox News program, uh, you you actually just get more headlines. You actually just get more public figures coming out and and spouting the same tired Russia is evil cliches. Um, so did we want to play the? Uh, yeah, the- I was just getting to that. Um, well, first of all, I want to say that. Um, we heard from Stephen Cohen earlier. That was on Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson, uh, he's hitting them out of the park lately. We've got another three clips from him. These are just from his interviews this week. I mean, his show goes out. It's like a new, a new show every day on Fox News. I can't believe. It must be this new timeline win, but I can't believe I'm going to Fox News online now. Well, to With be fair, anticipation to listen to one of their talking heads and what he's going to say today. But because well, this- <laughs> last week there were some gems, he he gets some crazy people on. But they're they're crazy in our current timeline. But in the old timeline, these people rule the roost. Um, he's also got a, a couple of people who are victims of this Russia hunt. Uh, who will I start with first? Maybe this is in parallel, so maybe we should start by playing Tucker Carlson interviewing um, Ralph Peters. Okay. Is there any more background on this one? Who do you remember? Who Ralph Peters is? Is he? uh, I'm. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you after. Okay. I do have some bio. I want to. I want to tell people after, and then I'll be like, okay, right. Let's listen to it. Why, when you have a power like Russia, which obviously has interests diverge from ours, but has some that align here, they've lost a lot of people to Sunni terrorism. Why wouldn't we cheer them on in their effort to stamp it out? Well, certainly we would, uh, but we can't have an anti-terror alliance with terrorists, which is what the Russians are. They're not Islamist terrorists, and they hate the United States of America. We have nothing in common with the Russians, and the Russians hate... Vladimir Putin hates us. He is malevolent. And you, he, he is as close to pure evil as I can find. Yeah. You made your career being an American conservative patriot. 
And now you're suddenly cheering for Vladimir Putin? To the extent that making temporary alliances with other countries serve our interests, I'm in favor of that. Making sweeping moral claims, grotesque ones, comparing people to Hitler, advances the ball not one inch. Vladimir actually. Putin it us is reality. He hates America. He wants to hurt us. And I'm sorry. All this, suddenly Vladimir Putin's a good guy. Russia's okay. No, it's not. Russia is so evil. So what's your Russia moral test? So some... Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, he's referring to the. You should, you should listen to the whole. It's a 12-minute interview, actually. If if you go to either Fox News on YouTube or just type in Tucker Carlson, Ralph Peters, and it's worth listening to in full. I mean, I just got some of the juicier bits there where he's gone full psycho, and he's basically insinuating to Tucker Carlson, as quite a lot of his interviewees these days are, that he too is a traitor to his country, who even dared to question the official narrative, which isn't even a coherent narrative, but the suggestion in the air is anyone saying anything good about Russia is is a traitor. So this, Ralph Peters is nuts. But he, in the course of that interview, Tucker Carlson handled him very well because he tried to get him just to come up with a coherent worldview. Well, what do you think we should be doing? You, you hear, obviously, that Carlson is trying to get him just to agree on the simple point that Trump has been making over and over since he was campaigning, Look, what if it's clear that Russia's kicking ISIS, but what if we can partner with them on this? Of course, there's a lot more behind the scenes with such a suggestion because, of course, it, you know, it, it, it just glosses over the fact that ISIS is very probably CIA anyway. But nevertheless, it's, uh, the strategy that Trump is angling for and that Tucker Carlson clearly is supportive of as well. And this guy just goes back and forth. He can't give a straight answer. When you watch it, you realize he can't give a straight answer because he's talking one minute. He's talking about why Assad is evil and why Iran is also evil. And that, but as of course, as you, you see in the clip, the main thing he's saying is that Russia is evil. And poor Carlson's left like, but if they're all evil, how can we work with anybody? And that's the very essence of the whole thing. The, the guys in the old timeline are used to not working with anybody. They just do and everyone else cows and follows. That's not happening anymore. So you have to adapt. That's basically Trump's position. We just have to adapt to the new world. And Carlson's expressing it well as well. But this guy shouting like, no, no, nobody. They're all our enemies and they will all submit. It's completely insane. Anyway, so Ralph Peters, just he's a, he's a throwback. So he's former military, U.S. military, of course, former general. I think colonel. He's also former intelligence. DIA, I think. Um, but he, he's really made his career since the 90s as a full-time propagandist. He's ranting about Russian propaganda. But this guy was the one who, um, at the height, when things were really going to hell in Iraq in 2006, this guy was like, no, nothing's wrong here. Um, writing editorials in the New York Times, one title in 2006 titled, Dude, Where's My Civil War? Basically saying everything was hunky-dory there. Nothing's wrong. Just as the country was beginning to fall apart completely. Um, he's, Ralph Peters is also the one, I don't know if he drew it, but he first published it. That map that's been doing the rounds for over a decade, where you see the Middle East, and it's cut up into new countries, and there, there's a color scheme. The borders are kind of highlighted to show you the yellows and greens and blues, just to 
they don't, the color scheme doesn't mean anything. It just accentuates the border. But I say that so you might recognize it because it's the one that creates this Kurdistan in the middle and it partitions northeast Syria along the Euphrates. Uh huh. That's what's going on right now. Um, it also partitions parts of Saudi Arabia. Of course, to create that Kurdistan, it takes a chunk out of southeast Turkey and a bit of Iran. Um, it's, it's, it's the map that's most associated with uh, Condoleezza Rice's talk that she gave 10 years ago about the birth pangs of a new Middle East. Um, so this guy, he's not the diabolical mastermind, but he's clearly close to the circles that think about these things and that are envisioning carving up the Middle East along the way the U.S. wants it. So he's been in the thick of U.S. interference in the Middle East, at least as, as a propagandist for it. I don't think he's the brainchild or anything, but he's definitely with, uh, he's, he's got the ear of some powerful circles. Another reason to listen to that interview in full is, I think you will notice that you cannot get a coherent answer out of him. Not so, at first I thought it's because he's, he's being, he's dissimulating. So he won't give you the whole answer because he's afraid to reveal too much classified information. You know, we don't want to give away to the enemy what we're, what we're actually trying to do. It, it's quite clear he doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> for exactly that reason. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It's amazing how these people are so cunning at basically lying and catching you flat-footed and insinuating that you're a traitor, and yet they're so utterly stupid at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, because as Carlson points out to him in his defense, Carlson, Carlson goes, oh, you know what? You're right. They're all evil. They're all bad. But look what's happening. The very thing that you fear and that you, you are adamant that we must make sure it does not come about, for example, that Iran becomes hegemonic in the region, your actions and the things that you have lobbied for all this time have brought about that exact situation. You destroyed Iraq. Iran became more powerful. You're destroying Syria. Iran interferes there. More powerful. Mm-hmm. That's that's the incredible irony of all this. They, they've created a new Middle East, all right, but it's one in which they won't have any piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mental. Um, so that's the hate Russia. There's another one that um, Carlson then, he, let's see, he interviewed Ralph Peters beginning of the week. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should hear now from, yeah, here's another one who's like Russia's evil. And this is coming at another angle. Again, the interviewee and the discussion wasn't about Trump Jr. It's about something else. But you see how all these things kind of form a semicircle of attack uh, focused on one center point, which is simply that Russia is evil. So this is the, the other um, tack they're taking to portray Russia as evil. Let's play Carlson's discussion with David Ciceline, I think it's pronounced, mm-hmm. David Ciceline, Democratic representative for Rhode Island. All right. Like foreign affairs is his thing. Anyway. All right, let's hear it. Well, I'm asking you specific questions that you don't want to answer. No, I'm answering you them. You throw out RT as a problem, and I'm asking, in what way is RT a problem, and what should we do about it? Well, there's nothing we can do about it. Oh, they can, they, Russian propaganda can exist, but what we can do is protect our democracy from it. And we can How least, can we protect our democracy from RT? We can punish the Russians for what they did. We can impose for sanctions. For having a cable network here. No, no, it's not a cable network. It's Russian propaganda that promotes 
false information that gets reposted on the internet, shared with what, what role does Larry King play in this? I have no idea. He's like one of the lead anchors <laughs> there. My, is he? No, I'm sorry. No, I don't know about Larry King's show. I'm talking about the efforts by, of RT, which is a well-documented Russian Boy, Are there any other news organizations that you think the U.S. Congress and the intelligence agencies ought to fight back against? No, uh, what I think we ought to fight back against is foreign governments interfering with okay. our presidential okay. election. I guess, the, look, here's the concern. We can't stop RT from existing, but we can punish the Russian government for, for having the audacity RT. to interfere with our election. Well, name, a story that, name a story that ran on RT. Well, there was a story about there was a story about all of the money raised in the Clinton campaign, uh, or by the Clinton Foundation, is used by the Clintons personally. The Clinton campaign is and funded by the RT? same sources as Texas. It was promoted as part of the Russian propaganda, but, and that was wrong. Of course, it's wrong. Okay, so you don't like the story in RT, so we need to punish the no, Russian no, government. No, no, that's not like We have to understand. Okay, we okay. are against fighting so you against can a very why. sophisticated... Right, no, I get all the what? adjectives, but no, I just no, want to get to the this core This is Russian <laughs> intelligence service trying to undermine... By the okay. way, it's not just here. They did it in France. They tried to do it in Germany. It they are trying to destabilize okay, Western democracy around the world. You're getting louder and broader. No, I'm trying to get you to get quieter and more precise. Oh, I'm melting! Oh my God! There are people out there on the internet. Russia is bad because people on the internet are reading alternative news and they're laughing at us. I'm melting. And one of the most damning uh, things about the uh, about the Clinton administration it was put out in a book. I, f I forget the name of it, but it was uh, it it was concerning the whole pay for play and and uh, her whole uh, the whole Clinton Foundation and, and how corrupt it is. And that was written by an American researcher. So, exactly. But, but if RT does an article about the book, then it's but if RT if RT does it, it's Russian propaganda. But we, I mean, we last year found all of about a dozen in-depth reports from the early nineties on Clinton's crimes, mm -hmm. among which were earlier equivalents of pay-for-play, and there was worse too. And they were published by Washington Post. New York Times back then. I mean, come on, it's it's everyone knows they're crime, they're a crime family. But anyway, so yeah, did did you notice the kind of what he was doing there? I I'm not saying he consciously did it, but he squirmed about one thing and then flipped to the other. Mm -hmm. Basically, there are two messages: Russians hacked our elections. Oh, what's your evidence for it? Internet users are retweeting RT. <laughs> And Carlson's like, what? Wait, what? What are we talking about here? One or the other? <laughs> but he'll conflate the two, and that's what's going on. It's a great game of confabulation of all these different things. Attack from Junior, Attack RT, uh, Russian collusion. It just, it's so asinine. I don't know how these people even function. It's, anyway, maybe we'll go straight to the last Right. Uh, clip we have for you. This is the other side. This is the. This is kind of a bit more scary because. Um. You're going to get a taste of some of the consequences, or some of the effects that the. This whole witch hunt is going to have, and not not just on Trump and his and his people close to him, but anyone. Um. Basically, not towing the line on this. So, on Friday, Tucker Carlson interviewed Michael Caputo, 
Caputo. I made him sound like a foreigner. He's, he's not. He's American. Uh, he's a former Trump campaign communications advisor. So he worked in the campaign until, I don't know, last summer. He's not implicated in any of this other stuff. Um, he left for some other reason. Anyway, he was hauled up before Congress on its whole rush. I don't know what exactly that. What, what's, the, what's the name of the, is the, there's more than one investigation going on in Congress right now over this. I don't know all the details on them. Okay. Anyway, he was hauled up to testify. I think he was subpoenaed. He had to go there and testify this week about what he knew, who he knew, blah, blah, blah. So let's listen to Michael Caputo speaking to Tucker Carlson. What did you learn in the event you went to today, the, the closed-door session? And this is a fishing ex- expedition. Okay. They told us two hours. We went three and a half hours. They repeated questions two and three times. They asked me about the same people two and three times. They were looking at each other with quizzical looks on their face. They don't know where they're going with this. So what, what kind of questions did you get asked? Well, I mean, did you know this person? Did you ever spend time with uh, Jared Kushner? Did you ever, you know, et cetera, all the different things that you would expect? And they couldn't hear no enough times. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I lived in Russia 20, 25 years ago, you know, and they're trying to ask me questions about 1994. If that's not a fishing expedition, I really don't know what it is. So your wife got brought into this. Yeah, Jackie Spear, the congresswoman from, and I use that term loosely, from uh, California, mentioned my wife in the midst of a live hearing on the air, you know, in front of millions of people. I was out of town on business. We started getting buried in threats. What does your wife have to do with that? Nothing. My wife, by the way, ironically, became a citizen not one month before. And within a month, she was already being accused of being a a traitor. Jackie Spear really was... On what grounds was your wife accused of being a traitor? She was born in Ukraine. Which, of course, as you and I both know, if you're born in Ukraine, that doesn't make you a fan of Russia. Jackie Spear just doesn't know her facts or has really bad interns in her office. But I want an apology from Jackie Spear. Because there's like a Cyrillic alphabet, therefore you're working for Putin? Oh, it's, I it's, thought it's, most Ukrainians hate Putin. They do, of course. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a difficulty going on between the two countries right now. But if you drink vodka, you have Russian dressing in your refrigerator, you're game for these people. So what happened when she mentioned your wife? Well, we started getting terrible threats. In fact, I was out of town on business. I got a call on my phone from somebody who said they were Antifa. And they said, we know you're out of town. We're going to burn your house down with your, my, your wife and children in it. And, you know, things have changed for my family dramatically. Even though I left the Trump campaign on June 2nd, and even though I've never heard anyone, least of all Donald Trump, even say the word Russia during the entire time I was on that campaign. This is a fishing expedition. It's clearly designed to delay and, and stop the, the, the Donald Trump agenda. We messed with elections. The funny thing, th- thing is, I was sent in 1994 to Russia by the Clinton administration to get involved in their elections. Huh. Seeking what outcome? Uh, the re-election of Boris Yeltsin. All the major opposition parties in Russia were concerned about my work there and said I had to stop meddling in their elections. That irony is not lost on me. Ding. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Where do you start? The death threat from Antifa? I mean, that's well, whoever, someone calls his house, claims to be, I, I, I'm from Antifa. I don't imagine Antifa kids actually calling people's houses. But no, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's going on, too. And it just synchronizes with insinuations from high officials, Congress people in Congress that he's a traitor. It's you can see how this can rapidly get out of control. Well, there's a kind of interesting uh, coincidence in terms of timing here, because uh, Dick Morris who was another uh, Clintonista operative 
um, you know, the Bill Clinton administration has also come out recently to corroborate Michael Caputo's assertion that Clinton uh, did, in fact, send Caputo uh, and probably one or two others into Russia. Uh, Bill Clinton had had given um, Yeltsin advice on how to run his campaign. Uh, Clinton didn't want the uh, the Communist Party uh, person who was running at the time to to win. Uh, certainly, they they probably saw a pliant, uh, useful um, uh, uh, kind of vassal, weak leader in Yeltsin, and and that's why they were kind of supporting his reelection. Uh, and we all know how bad that turned out to be for Russia. So it's just very interesting uh, to me that at, at at this very point in time when this story, even though it was originally broken, Time magazine, it, it's taken on a, a whole different level of significance uh, next to the idea that we're accusing Russia of interfering with uh, the elections in the U.S. when, in fact, Bill Clinton had a, a direct hand in in uh, steering Russian elections in the 90s. Yeah, so, it, it doesn't, that, that doesn't, that, that's, you know, water off a duck's back for these people. At this point in the U.S., um, the, the claim of, well, what about parity? You know, Putin's a killer. Trump says, well, we kill people too. Okay, that was an unusual admission, but like, yeah, so what? Yeah, but he shouldn't be killing people. We're, we're moral, we're righteous. Uh, I mean, th- that isn't scandalous in itself. It's, it's the, it's the, the, the death threats and the insinuation, you know, it's, I mean, obviously it's kind of shades of McCarthyite, uh, witch hunt, but also, I mean, for those who maybe know a little bit of what w- went on in Roman times, I keep thinking of Catilinarian conspiracies, mm-hmm. which is a massive crisis that blew up and everyone was implicated, you know, and basically being a traitor to the state and, uh, exactly the same kinds of arguments were being used and exactly the same kind of hypocrisies were exposed all over the place. Um, Harrison's the expert on that, but if you want to say something on that, go for it, but otherwise we can move on. Well, no, I mean, just a kind of general statement that this kind of thing, it's, it's a repeating pattern. And like you saw, like you, you see in Roman history, I mean, there's this period of hysteria and it's followed by the kind of the worst kind of atrocities you can imagine where people are just, um, you know, well, in Rome, they had um, basically they'd put up like Sulla would put up lists of the the what was it called? The cons- oh, the word is escaping me. Conscription. Con- or, well, basically lists of people who proscription lists of people who could be um, assassinated and have their all of their belongings confiscated and with um, no legal implications yeah. yeah no legal implications and so people would just like you have in like Nazi had in Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union you had people that, that would then exploit the system get people's names on that list uh, so they could ha- so that they could get their property um uh, you know people people's careers lives uh families were just ruined um often for no reason whatsoever um, with, you know, the thin justification that these were s- somehow enemies of the state for whatever reason. And it's so we saw a kind of a similar thing with McCarthyism. I mean, it didn't go as far as people being assassinated in the streets and, and you know, their bank accounts emptied, but r- lives were still <clears throat> ruined. And you just see the same level of hysteria, like, like more on just an emotional level 
where it it just gets it spirals out of control where the, even just the, the merest hint that you might have any connection to anything Russian whatsoever is enough for your career to be ruined, for you to get death threats, uh, maybe to be called in front of some congressional hearing. Um, it's just, it's insanity is all I can say about that. For anyone who wants to know what happens next, in Rome, uh, some of the alleged conspirators were tried in sham courts, executed, and then as Caesar at the time warned them, this sets a dangerous precedent because it can be used against you later. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they're not thinking they're not even usually they're at least smart to protect their own self-interest. But somebody is going to make a mistake and it's going to. I don't know. I can't predict it. So I won't say what's going to happen in the meantime. Um, just another editorial and um, this time from the Wall Street Journal. It's not all bashing Trump. In the U.S. mainstream, um, the WSJ this week ran a, an editorial running the Schumer blockade. That'll be a reference to Chuck Schumer, um, Democrat Senate Minority Leader. This guy is basically spearheading the efforts to effectively filibuster every Trump appointee in government. It's so bad the situation. Seven seven months into the administration. That the editorial writes, Trump might not be able to fill the remaining 400 positions in four years. The cloture rule is called that, that the Democrats are abusing the heck out of also allows the minority to halt other business during debate periods, which helps slow the Republican policy and oversight agenda, i.e. it retards their ability to actually govern. They're willing to sabotage the hell out of this, but that should be no surprise given what we're hearing about Trump with this whole Russian collusion insinuation. They are going full men- full mental jacket on this big time, big time. Um, oh, one other thing, in the, if, if you do li- get to listen to the Carlson interview with Ralph Peters. <laughs> Carlson opens it by just as a sort of quick report before he launches it. So his question is, so why shouldn't we, you know, work with the Russians on dealing with ISIS in Syria? He opens his report by just casually mentioning that um, ISIS leader al-Baghdadi eh, as reported in and there was one other recent report this week. It's actually four or five weeks old. Anyway, Carlson cited, I think, yeah, he cited the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights that al-Baghdadi is confirmed dead, killed in Russian airstrikes, uh, which wound up Peter's no end because straight off the bat, he's like, no, they didn't. We killed him. <laughs> um, which he just, assuming he even knows that he is actually dead, he just admitted that yes, he's been he's been killed. So, um, the, yeah, like I said, there have actually been many reports, and to even Assad's opponents, and therefore Russia's opponents in Syria, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, according to their ISIS sources, one wonders how exactly um, Baghdadi is dead. The Russians did kill him, but you wouldn't know it to listen to U.S. media, except of course Tucker Carlson mentions it in passing. The new Osama bin Laden was killed by the Russians. 
Of course, they're not going to hype this up. They're not going to cash in on it because the Russians are evil. We've got a caller. Do we want to take this? Yeah, let's go ahead. Caller, you're caller, on the line. On the line. Oh, we've got some, oh, we've got some, some can, feedback. Can you hear me? Can your speakers off? My speakers are off. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah, yes. We can hear you. Yes. Yeah, this is, this is Stephen. Stephen, welcome Steven, back. welcome back. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I just had a couple of comments um, just to, about where we're at right now. Um, it's pretty fascinating that the subject of Syria and um, democracy now, I used to listen to it assiduously, and, uh, but there's something that happened after uh, Obama became elected. Um, I consider democracy now, right now, uh, at this moment, um, a propaganda, a pro-imperialist uh, regime change uh, media propaganda outlet. And um, that's pretty shocking in that they, they represent what is supposed to be the left of the political spectrum here in the United States. And um, the subject of uh, Syria, to me, is crucial when I, when I um, gauge anybody's politics or intelligence. Because it really, um, it really shows how people just refuse to critically think and, um, and, and, and they don't think. Oh, Stephen, hold on. You're, you're getting really quiet. Quiet. Okay. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. I was just, I was just, I was just making the remark that, um, we really are at an interesting juncture in the United States in that we really have no traditional, uh, anti-imperialist, anti-war left in the United States. It's just, it's virtually non-existent right now. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, uh, you guys, um, are, are one of the few outlets that are actually, uh, Ava Bartlett, Vanessa Bealey, uh, Patrick Henney. Oh, we lost you again. Yeah, you dropped out again. You dropped out again. Okay, well, yeah, I, I'm just, I, Uh, we're just we're just getting clicks and stuff, Stephen. But uh, okay, yeah, we'll, 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 I'll just listen. I'll just listen from here on out. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, thanks for calling okay, in, Stephen. Bye, Stephen. Bye, Stephen. Yeah, and even when we were hearing you, Stephen, we were still hearing ourselves whenever we spoke. So something's up with our connection there, your way or our way. Anyway, so yeah, point taken. Well, we we don't pat ourselves on the back too much on that. I mean. Anti-war movement. Nobody wants war. Even most Americans are sick of it. I think. I mean, by voting in Trump, I think they're saying, you know, let's rein it in at least, if not, let's end it. Um, uh, on Syria, comment. Uh, yeah, go on, ahead. Uh, a, a point uh, Stephen was making, which is a pretty good one, and was covered on an article, a recent article, to Saad about how progressives and the Democratic Party of the U.S has effectively become a tool for the far right, has effectively become the far right in this country over a period of just the last few decades. And one of the points it makes is that uh, all of the, or many of the people that have been involved with the Democratic Party um, have been funded mostly by uh, corporations, Wall Street, uh, and, and various other organizations, and are allowed to, to speak out and, and say these, you know, quote unquote, you know, express these progressive sentiments, 
and and liberal leaning, you know, social socially conscious um, policies. But at the end of the day, uh, they're they are told to support whoever it is that is running for the Democratic Party, whatever it is they actually think and do. And Barack Obama in particular was one of the most kind of profound uh, bait and switches inside of the Democratic Party that we've ever seen. Well, actually, it started with Bill Clinton because you have this very well-concealed veneer of, of, uh, of Democratic values or progressive values. But when it comes time to it, uh, the, the policies that, that these guys end up um, implementing happen to be the most destructive for Democrat, true Democratic values. So a lot of people have bought into uh, the, the, the leaders that get foisted into these positions of the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, Barack Obama, the first black president, uh, the idea itself uh, overshadows everything that he actually does. So uh, I just thought that was a good point. And uh, one of the problems with with the fact that they've that the progressives and Democratic Party in this country have become a they've really become fascists in a sense. Well, I, I love the 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 reaction to them. It's awesome The they're now I mean, they're now social justice warriors. And that to me is like that. <laughs> The, the meaning and the jokes, like it's it's they're definitely onto something. People who are criticizing them up one way and down the other because they are absolutely nuts. Not across, not like totally nuts. They're right on some things, of course, but they are nutty. And I suppose in the end, like you said, they're allowed progressive. They're inculcated into cert into progressive beliefs. Sometimes well informed, usually not. And but there are certain maxims they cannot cross, and one of them, in the end, whether they whether they claim to be out, outwardly, whether they say they're anti-war or not, one of them is that America shall rule by bomb or by crook, and that's it. Whereas the right in the U.S., the right in quotes, I mean, this is all very fluid these days, is the one taking the actual anti-war position of questioning in a very rational way, what the hell are we doing? Are we making things worse by doing what we're doing? How much is it costing us again? Simple questions. These are the anti-war questions. And so the the, the locus of anti-war, if you like, has shifted to the right in the U.S. in, in this time. One of the other topics that I know Stephen um, follows very closely is Syria. Um, Trump's being pilloried at home, of course, but Abroad, I mean, there's some seriously interesting stuff going on. Like, I thought it would be the other way around. I thought I thought Trump would rule the roost at home and utterly fail abroad because foreign policy belongs to the deep state. But after that meeting last weekend with Putin, you know, they organized this um, truce or agreement on how things would play in the southwest of the country. By all accounts, it's holding. Mm-hmm. Um, Moon of Alabama writes... Under the truce agreement, the Russian side guarantees that the Syrian government and its allies, Hezbollah and Iranian militias, would stop fighting or encroaching on areas where the U.S. are close to or at in southwest Syria, or southeast Syria, rather. Um, While the U.S. guarantees that Israel 
FSA, other rebel groups, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., stay quiet. The U.S. didn't say that. Not, we'll keep ISIS quiet. Mullah al-Mama is just, you know, jumping the gun there by assuming ISIS is controlled by the U.S., which they are. Um, and he, he, was, he was right to, to note that that's interesting. It's been a week of quiet mm-hmm. in, in the region where they agreed to be calm because the U.S., therefore, has the stronger influence over all those entities. That's Israel and ISIS. Now, that, that, I find that interesting because in the back and forth about trying to work out who the hell's on first in the Middle East or, or over the years and decades even, people have said, well, it's Israel that called the shots, you know. Uh, obviously, this blows the idea that ISIS is not controlled by the U.S. out of the water. But that's another interesting The U.S. can, and specifically Trump apparently, has been able to get Israel to agree to it so far. Um, in the meantime, the Syrian, that, that, this doesn't stop the Syrian army advancing towards Deir ez-Zor. Um, and of course, in the meantime, the U.S. is hunkering down. They have forces now. They've now apparently built eight bases and photos are starting to emerge, I think, taken by Syrian forces spying on them, uh, of big bases, several with airfields up in northeast Syria. So, it's hunkering down there, and uh, of course, in a couple of months' time, there's a referendum on Kurdistani, Iraqi Kurdistan's. Or they say they're going to hold a referendum. I don't know if Baghdad will recognize it. I highly doubt it. Um, on the independence of northern Iraq as an Iraqi Kurdistan. So there's that, plus the northeast. They're probably still going to push this like crazy. Um, carving out a new country, smacking the region, which they imagine will be controlled by the U.S. Um, they're dreaming because key to that would have been getting rid of Erdogan and ensuring some kind of compliance along this direction from the Turks. We've just passed yesterday the anniversary of the attempted coup in Turkey. Um, right. Turks have been out on the street for millions. Um, commemorating that event when some 200 plus people literally threw themselves under tanks to stop the coup plotters. That was actually, um, it's kind of an untold story. That was, among other reasons, there were operational things that went wrong. Obviously, they meant to assassinate Erdogan mid-flight, and apparently the Russians saved his ass from that. Um, but uh, apparently, of these, I think it's 6,000 Turkish troops who were on the side of the coup generals, apparently they lost morale sometime around three or four in the morning because of the sheer numbers of ordinary people coming out in the streets and literally throwing themselves in front of the tanks. And they were getting crushed. 200 people crushed by tanks. Um, and apparently that was what broke it. That many of them just walked away. They gave up. They were attacked or they just simply laid down the weapons and they were rounded up and arrested. But that was a breaking point that they lost morale and they just thought, holy shit. What, you mean everything you told us isn't true? People actually like our leader, you know? So um, that's a year on and that's consolidated Erdogan's power, which means there is no way in hell he's ever going to allow. In fact, he said as much just last week, if anyone needed reminding, that there's not going to be an independent Kurdistan. 
We'll see, because there's tremendous force behind there being an argument for an independent Kurdistan, and it goes back 100 plus years. Um, in the end, what it comes down to is, I suppose, deal making, deal, deals that we'll only hear about after the fact. So we can't, we can't say what's going to happen there, but, uh, a couple of good news items as well. Unless one of you wants to, have any other updates on Syria, Syria related stuff? No. Mm-hmm. Um, people are wondering, is Putin going to run next year or not for another term? Well, there's a headline in Moscow Times which claims that somebody they know in the Kremlin says Putin is likely to run as an independent in the 2018 election. Shock. Oh. We'll see. He could just retire and set up a deep state and control it all from the background, you know? Yeah, and plus he said, uh, what did he tell uh, Oliver Stone? He said... Um, he implied basically that he'd only tell all the all the juicy details once he retired and, and wrote his memoirs or something like that. Yes, so we want him to retire ASAP. Yeah. <laughs> Give us the details. <laughs> Seriously, fill in the backstory. There's all these holes. Like, obviously Putin was there a long time, but it's only since 2014 that people have gone, "Holy moly, this guy's up to something," you know. Mm-hmm. So we want to know your strategy, your plans, what you did, who you killed. Just kidding. Um, we hope you didn't kill anyone. Um, or probably did. Depends on who you kill, I suppose. Um, another little item that is, again, it's one of these, can't say much about it, but this sort of still speaks volumes. The Chinese Navy, I think one of its newest warships and some support vessels, uh, popped up in the Mediterranean where they conducted live drills on the way to joint war games with Russia in the Black Sea. I mean, when the Chinese Navy is starting to come out, never mind the South China Sea, but, you know, all the way around, past the new base that they're building in uh, in the Horn of Africa, up the Red Sea, into the Mediterranean, they're kind of announcing, yes, we are in new era now. <laughs> we make your stuff. Yes? You give us money. <laughs> Chinese dream. Yes. So, um, anything else we want to touch on today, fellows? Mm. I don't think so. Yeah, that covers it pretty well, I think. I think, I think we covered everything. There's nothing else. <laughs> well, unless, right. any of our, unless any of our chatters have anything quick that they want to suggest. But no, I think we're done. Seeker says Putin for Tsar. Oh, dear. But what about democracy, dude? You really want to go back to monarchy? Yeah. I mean, in the end, in the end, look, what's, 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 what can we distill from all this back and forth about whether capitalism is better or socialism is better, whether monarchy might be the solution or whether that's simply backwards and democracy baby all the way. I mean, in the end, no matter what the ism you begin with, once it comes time, say say you're elected, you're going through a democratic process, when it comes time to governing, the, the isms go out the window and the reality of governing sets in. And you really have very limited options. Putin said that in his interview with Stone. 
uh, Stone was, you know, trying to get the juicy details from Putin and what he thought about Trump and what a Trump president, and then once Trump is elected, what Trump's going to do? Is it all going to change? And Putin's like, look, look, you get into power and you quickly learn that there are very narrow confines within which you can work. Um, in part because of the types of people that are around you. They're often nuts. They're powerful. They're cunning. They're super intelligent. Trump said, I'm very smart. That's true. He's pretty smart. But there are a lot of other smart people too. They're out to get you. And it's partly because you can't move a whole country overnight. It's There are structural reasons why it takes time to really change anything. Maybe you have a radical vision and you start implementing it. And then you get pushed back. Uh, or maybe you simply get chaotic results from it. And then you go, oh, God, maybe I'm not so committed to that idea after all. And you start to rethink it. And it teaches you. It, the experience of governing teaches you along the way that um, whatever ism you thought you were standing for, whatever you sold to people at election time, um, in practice, there's only one ism, and it's governism. Mm-hmm. The Venezuelans are learning this too. Um they still shout the slogans of Chavismo, ole ole, kick out the oligarchs, ole ole. And, you know, that's good. It keeps them, you know, it keeps morale up and team spirit and they all wear red and they look like absolute died in the wall socialists. And it's very easy then to rile up Americans and go, you see, look, look at that country over there. It's chaotic. It's socialist. Well, it, it's chaotic in part because it's a form of civil war going on there where the 80% who have been poor for the country's entire modern existence are like, we've had enough of this. Can we not be a normal country like everyone else? Can anyone just not, can we not be governed like other people? We want to have stuff and freedom, you know, and trade and travel and holidays and not die of hunger. And they're learning. Uh, they, you can listen to interviews of, of activists. I'm not talking about government officials in Venezuela, but just regular people who are, you know, Regular, but they're part of the apparatus. I mean, they're, they're activists, but they themselves have become wise to some of their original diehard beliefs and they've adapted them. It doesn't mean they've, you know, sold out, but they have had to compromise. So in, in the one I have in my mind, it's an interview with this guy in Caracas and he's interviewed by Abby Martin and he says, um, you know, in passing, he says, well, it's not that all the oligarchs are evil. They're just some. The ones we don't like are the unpatriotic ones messing things up. And that right there, do you see? Unpatriotic, patriotism, faith or loyalty to the country. That's the same kind of argument that someone on the on the so-called right would pull out, right? Mm-hmm. You're either a patriot or you're not. That, that's how your world splits. You, are you with us or are you against this kind of thing? And here you have a socialist, in quotes, coming to the same realization. It doesn't matter what ism. You're both talking about the same thing. And in practice, he was alluding to the same problem Russia faced. Probably still faces, but really faced when Putin came in. He said, well, it's not that I want to kick all the oligarchs out. I just want to get as many of them as possible on board playing ball on behalf of the whole country. Mm-hmm. Just maybe by paying taxes. Can you do that? Can you start paying taxes? Like, you know, other normal people? Okay. Most of them said okay. And then a few of them didn't. And then you dealt with them. So you go from this hard position of, 
oligarchs are evil. Viva la people. To, well, actually, it's not so cut and dry. There are shades of grey. Some oligarchs are cool. Let them be rich. Let them make money. They're good at doing that. Okay, you carry on. But these other ones over here, they're a problem. So there are shades of grey all the way around. Same in the US. Same in Venezuela. Venezuela is in the same crosshairs as the United States. The, the same crosshairs, crosshairs, but it's more like it's, they're in, we're all in the same dynamic. This kind of globalism where the empire is, is saying it's our way or the highway versus nationalism where the people are saying, actually, no, it's not, we, we want to, we want to do things our way. It's the same in France, nationalism versus globalization. Same in Venezuela, same in the US, same in Russia. So, that's my monologue for the day. All right. All right. Well, well thank you for that monologue. Okay, guys. Um, it's been an interesting show. Thanks to um, us, of course. Oh, we're welcome. <laughs> A big thanks to our chatters. And a great conversation going there in the chat room. Thanks to Steve for calling in. Better luck next time. Do call back. We miss you. We're curious uh, what you think about what's going on, and uh, do try again. We'll be back next week. Are we going to have an interview next week, Harrison? That's the plan. So just in case, uh, just in case something it falls through, uh, you know, we won't announce it yet, but uh, uh, we're hoping for a, for an interview. It's going to be a good one. So everyone, tune in next week. And we'll we'll put up all the details before the show, so you'll see it on the main page. All right. All right. Until next week. Yeah. Keep the faith. Tune in. Take care, everyone. Bye, everyone.